was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay. Are you sure? Because, I mean, how do you know? Because of the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know, but, well, how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here? Ma'am, I answered your question. Happy New Year, listening people. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Vartek. <laughs> how are you doing? Good, Ryan. Good. I had to say Happy New Year, sort of like my hello, and I'm like, well, that's a lot of syllables. Yeah, it's a lot to demand of you. We survived the challenge that is that was 2020. Now we're surviving the challenge that is 2021, which will date this episode nicely. People in the well, there's future, an upload date, so. fu- yeah, but people in the future will come back to this. They will go, oh. They thought 2020 was bad. They didn't know what was ahead of them. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what we were doing last year with 2016, right? Yeah. <laughs> 2016, yeah. So we are back. It is great to be here with you, Bartek, in the room, talking about movies again. We, we had a little respite for Christmas. We had some worries about our state at the moment when it comes to all this stuff going on. But, but we've managed to, to slip into the same room again to chat about movies. And what a way to start off the year. Pictures power right into my veins. But could you remind us all, now that it's a new year, why we are called Spit and Polish? We are called Spit and Polish because we are always spitting and we both happen to be Polish. How was Poland's um, New Year's? What do what, Does Poland have any celebrations that are uniquely Polish for when it is coming to the end of a year and the start of another? I think New Year's in Poland is pretty much exactly as everywhere that we know, Western world. More carbonated water? Probably, yeah. More <laughs> gasovane water. And more good curry? Good curry? Didn't you tell me that the best curry you've ever had in your life the sp- was in the sp- Poland? The spiciest curry. Oh, the spiciest. Sorry, I equated <laughs> yeah. the spiciest with the best. In a manner, well, I mean, I love spiciness, so in a manner of speaking, that was a, you know, special experience for me. But so, it, yeah. top five curry experiences? This is the curry podcast <laughs> in which yeah, we it's... spit in curry? <laughs> it's been a few years well, like 2015, I think. But wow, yeah. six years. if I ever go back to Poland, if I ever go back, if it's still there, if it's still there, <laughs> that, yeah, recent years, not much has really drawn me. Um, but if I ever go back, I'd be keen to see if that place is still around, and I'd go again. Well, that's that then. Uh, let's get to Pictures Power Hour, the show in which we talk about a movie that's come recommended. I recommended the movie. I recommended Fargo, directed by our good friends, the Cohen brothers. Uh, we've talked about a couple of Coen Brothers movies already on the pod. Yes, I think this is the third one overall. Yes, and I am a fan of the Coen Brothers. I have seen most of their movies, not all of them. I have still yet to watch Inside Lewin Davis, for example, or The Man That Wasn't There. Mm -hmm. There's a couple I haven't seen, but overall, I'm a fan of their work, and Fargo is often touted as... One of their best, if not their best. It's definitely one that you can point to as a prime example of this is the Coen brothers. These are the type of movies they make. Mm-hmm. 
while before I chose Miller's Crossing, that's kind of very Coen Brothers still, but they're very much aping off of a previous era of filmmaking with your gangster movies and your crime things in your 1930s, 20s. Yeah, yeah. And Intolerable Cruelty is them having fun and making a fun movie with George Clooney being introduced via his teeth. Mm-hmm. And that one's a little bit more them being relaxed. But Fargo is often one of the ones that you can definitely point to and say, now this is is top tier Coen Brothers affair. So I've seen this movie many a times. It's definitely one that I enjoy very much so. But I chose this because I know that you've never seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. I think I said at the end of the very first ever Pictures Power when you picked Miller's Crossing that there, there are a pair of directors or filmmakers that I'm always keen to check more out of. And I have never seen any of their films a second time. It's always been first mm-hmm. viewings for me. So this was my first viewing of Fargo. So what ones have you seen to remind us all? I think this makes it my fourth one. I've seen Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. I've seen The Big Lebowski. And then the two that we've done on podcast, Intolerable Cruelty and Miller's Crossing. So this is my fifth one. So you haven't seen No Country for Old Men? No, I haven't. Oh, interesting. You haven't seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? No. Where Art Thou? That's a fun one. Um, That's another one of their fun ones. It's got John Goodman back in that one too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Oh, well, Fargo, here we are. If you have not seen this movie and you are listening to this, we will be talking spoilers about this. And I'll minorly bring up the TV show. No major spoilers there. Just some, some minor things from that first season, perhaps. But just minorly, just minorly. But mainly, we're going to be talking about the film, because the film is the film. And it's a film podcast. And yeah. it's a film podcast, where every month we also talk about a TV show, so who knows? <laughs> uh, Bartek, what was your experience watching this, and the lead-up to it? Because I've made it no qualms or queries, or, or like, I haven't hidden the fact that this is often regarded as their best film, if not their actual best like definitely one of their best Mm. so what was your experience actually watching the film of theirs that has probably been hyped up for you yeah i haven't i don't i don't necessarily remember any of your hyping up of it but it's a name that i've just always known like oh yeah there's a really good film out there called fargo i know that Mm. a tv show exists i think my mum and my brother have seen the tv show Mm -hmm. um so i just know that like yeah fargo is a name that's like it means high quality whatever is called fargo um, so when I did eventually see it, it meant, you know, I'm finally going to see one of the greats. Mm. And even with that hype, I thought that this film was incredibly easy to get engaged in. You have seen now, probably even handedly, Coen Brothers being more serious and Coen Brothers being more comedic in their films. Mm-hmm. Intolerable Cruelty and Big Lebowski are definitely fun, quirky little fun time movies. Miller's Crossing and this one are definitely far more serious mm. in tone and nature. But this one's still funny. Yeah, this one is a lot of mix of both regular comedy and also black comedy. Yes, whilst also still being a very engaging crime movie with serious dark elements and very heavy themes that come with that uh, genre. Same with Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing had some light stuff in there, but that was far more straight. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one has some levity in there, so I was really keen to know how you felt about that because it's kind of, Fargo is kind of, mixing these elements that you have seen from their previous films and distilling them down into this. So how did how did you feel about all that? 
yeah, it was it was great. I thought the whole package fit, uh, fit fitted together really well. Um, the comedy was, like I said, it's a mix of regular comedy and also dark comedy. Like I think of the moment <laughs> at the end of Intolerable Cruelty where that assassin guy with the inhaler accidentally yeah, shot Weezy him, Joe, yeah. Weezy Joe shot himself in the mouth thinking it was the inhaler. You know, it's a it's a dark thing to happen, and you know it would be horrifying. But there was comedy to that moment, and this film had a lot of that going on, especially with, like, you know, Steve Buscemi. Getting shot in the face. <laughs> and him shooting the father. And that scene is both very serious, very serious, but also really, really funny. Yeah, and and this film has a lot of very despicable, greedy people in it. So, mm. to an extent, you're seeing a lot of them getting comeuppance. So, you were aware of the name. You were aware of who made the film. Mm-hmm. But how... Until watching it, how aware were you of what the film was actually going to be about, or what it actually kind of is? Like, did you have anything? Dude, like nothing. I didn't even. I I always assumed that Fargo was a person's name. Right. Yeah. So you didn't know it was a location. No. The only. I think the only thing I knew was last week. It wasn't last week, but last episode you mentioned, oh, snowy film. So it was going to have a snowy setting. That's like all I knew. Right. So you didn't know it was going to be a crime film. You didn't know who was going to be in it. Didn't know a thing other than snow. You didn't, even when upon watching it, there wasn't anything that happened or was shown in the movie that you're like, oh, this is what this is from. I guess the main thing is that I've heard trivia of the Big Lebowski that Mm. in a previous film of the Coen brothers... Uh, Steve Buscemi talked a lot, mm. so there was a joke in that film of people yelling at him to shut up. Yes. So, and but when I finished this film, I realized, oh, this is the film where he, he spoke a lot. Yes, he can't. He cannot stop speaking. <laughs> yes, and he's you know juxtaposed to a guy that has, I think it said, sixteen lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, which were all barely sentences, <laughs> and some of them not in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I'm glad to hear that because I assume with a lot of these type of movies these big big movies like Fargo that most people have some basic understanding even if they haven't seen it like oh well Fargo it's a Coen Brothers movie set in the snow where crime happens and there's the pregnant cop lady Mm. that's that movie right and it's like yep that's that movie but the complexities of that is lost if you just think of it as that so you walking in like a newborn baby with nothing and un- no understanding of what was going to happen and unfold yeah. in front of you is is great to hear because you get that golden thing that some people miss out on especially if people are wanting to watch a coen brothers movie of not knowing what to expect yeah, from you it. walk in with some pop culture osmosis like, yeah like i read online that apparently a lot of people think of this film even if they haven't seen it as oh that's the one with the wood chipper or something like yes that. the famous steve buscemi when he appeared in the simpsons he's like hello i'm famous actor steve buscemi you might remember me from being shoved in a wood chipper in fargo like that's this movie where mm. steve buscemi's thrown into a wood chipper yeah when you actually watch the movie you see the aftermath of it you see his foot but you don't you well, know the, the the three quarters through Marth, I guess, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, but you don't see him... Sh- and when you think that, you think alive, perhaps. Yeah, you see his, you still see his foot with a sock on it. Yes, hasn't gone in yet. And some of his body wrapped in a, in a tarp on the ground. <laughs> but, um, I'm glad to hear that. So, I love this movie. It's a classic to me. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but it's definitely been in my life from a very early point. And it's one of those movies that I... What sticks with me is obviously the visuals, the the, the the barren wasteland of 
the, all the snow everywhere and them having to drive around and just everything's wet from the snow having melted on the ground and they're all like all that stuff and the, her obviously margie with you know right, yeah, yep. being pregnant and the hat and the hair and just how innocent she is and the accents i, I remember a lot of that stuff is always what sticks with me. And Steve Buscemi being... A lot of yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Steve Buscemi being Steve Buscemi in the movie and the wood chipper. And all of those things are definitely things that uh, that have stuck with me over the years. But one of the things that I like about the movie that makes me go, oh, I really want to watch this movie. You know what I'm talking about when you get yeah. that urge and there's that, there's that thing that drives you to want to watch yeah, this the, movie. The, the thing that, yeah, drives you, like you said is the themes and the general feeling of the movie, of that great mixture of that sense of absolute hopelessness and that sense that hope is still a thing that we can have in the world. Mm -hmm. That's what really drives me and makes me think of this movie very fondly because it, the Coen brothers somehow always nail that great balancing act between those two extremes of what you could say is absolute nihilistic viewpoint of the world, this kind of gritty, down and out, just depressing, depraved sadness that is in the world. Mm-hmm. And that sense that there can still be hope and optimism and people can be happy. We've seen David Lynch explore that very much so uh, with Twin Peaks and stuff, right? We've yes, talked about yeah. that. But the Coen brothers, where they do it, say, with Fargo and even Miller's Crossing, they explore it in far more of a matter-of-fact way to me than David Lynch. David Lynch is very over-the-top. Like, his emotions are very high, very high. This is like the film ends with just them in bed. And it's like, they love each other. End film. <laughs> like, yeah, and even in that scene, like a minute before, she had a speech about, like, you know, you can be happy with simple things. And that's what I love, the simplicity Somehow, these two ginormous, heady things that you can have, Mm. these nihilistic and hopeful thematically, they treat with an almost blunt simplicity. And you could say that sounds like a bad thing. And in another filmmaker's hands, you could easily fumble the bowl by trying to approach those things like that. And having both those things in the same movie even, but trying to approach both of them and having that kind of matter-of-fact nature to it, they somehow do it effortlessly, and that's what always draws me back to this movie, is just that how violence just begets violence, how how that happens, but also kindness does the same thing in the movie as well, and that that stuff is what draws me back. Yeah, the violence and yeah, the imagery and the music and the performances and the comedy and the accents and <laughs> and all of that stuff is great too. And the, the story beats, but it's it's that element of the movie that really draws me in. What did you think of that stuff in the movie? Was that prevalent to you on this watching? Or was that something that you think you'd see in a further watching or you didn't see it at all? What was your feeling? Uh, definitely when you use the word blunt, I agree. I, I was kind of looking at this film and its characters and I was kind of trying to see a commonality between all the Coen Brothers things I have seen and remember. Mm. Um, and I guess the words that I chose were unsubtle but incredibly engaging and nuanced like yeah a lot of the characters in this 
uh, characters you only see for one scene, and mm-hmm. you get a lot out of them in those scenes. You get all their like quirks, like the police officer that Margie was with when they saw the dead bodies. I think his name was Lou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, in it a few times. I yeah, love Lou. Yeah, you get like a little bit of him, like, oh, he's not the brightest, but, you know, he means well, he tries hard. Yeah. And all those elements of him not being the brightest are very, you know, very obviously there. They're not too subtle, but the way that those elements are used are engaging and he feels like a real person. Yeah, and... It's weird to say not subtle, because when... It has a negative connotation. It has a negative connotation when you say this in an analytical standpoint. Like, it's not very subtle. It's very on the nose. It hits it again and again and again and again. The Coen brothers in this film and in a lot of their films, it's about how methodically they do it. The repetition of dialogue is very precise, whether it be for comedic intent or dramatic intent. They know how to do that. And... It's that realism thing, because there's this moment in the movie in which our main, you could say main character, or at least definitely one of them, Margie, she, <laughs> Margie, she has this moment, you, you, you meet her, she's pregnant, oh, goofy, goofy, oh, I'll make you eggs, oh, I'm having morning sickness, but then you have that scene in which she meets up with her old high school friend guy yeah. who's the Asian cop from Falling Down, mm-hmm. if you remember him, the I one do. that gets cold in. It's like, you're Korean. It's like, fuck you, I'm <laughs> Japanese. Yeah. Even though in real life that guy's actually Japanese. I mean, Korean. He's Korean. And He's the guy Park. he was talking to was actually Japanese. Japanese but Cor- yeah, I know. Yeah. Very funny. But He was very familiar, and then when I looked up, I'm like, yes, that is exactly who he is. You have that scene, right, in which it turns her character... From goofy two-dimensional, you could say, haha, isn't it funny to see such a weird image of goofy, accented, fully pregnant cop into making her a really dramatic, humanizing character because she's having to face off against someone who's even more cartoony than her, but in a very negative, sad, pathetic, and outright bad, like, just gross way. And then you learn more about what that guy was actually about, and... You have that kind of moment there, and then that kind of feeds into when she encounters our villain at the end of the movie and just how horrified she is about the whole entire affair, Mm -hmm. even though she's a cop, right? She's seen all this violence, and she's been reacting very nonchalantly to it all. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like a headshot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, all that. She reacts very nonchalantly to it, but by the end, you have that she isn't anymore. She's genuinely disheartened by the whole entire affair, and... That's a part of what I like, again, about the theme of there's this hopelessness that is ever pervasive in there in this film that, again, is not very subtle. It's being hammered in there. But in a way, you need it to be very blunt and forceful to make a character like her experience it because she is very on the opposite. Like, she's on the opposite end of that hopelessness spectrum and she's very, like, cartoony at the beginning. Like, not you know, she's very... She's whimsical. Whimsical. Yeah. And... You beat her down and pulverize her down to where she can still see the, the the darkness in the world, but she still has that optimistic she does, hopefulness. She does, yes. Yeah, she doesn't really understand evil. She tries to see the good in people, but she sees it. She sees, <laughs> and she sees it, and she doesn't really understand it. Yes, and she doesn't like it. Well, throughout the rest of the movie, she's just been like, oh, you know, like. Here's this couple, they got brutally murdered and a cop over there. He looked like a nice fella. All that kind of stuff. Mm. I, I gotta ask, you have a very difficult time 
out of the two of us with these two things. Accents. Mm-hmm. Um, and your main character not being evidently clear from the very beginning. Because we don't meet her until 33 minutes into the movie. Yep. And you could make the statement of, is she our main character? Or is it um, Jerry? Jerry? Yeah. And if so... Is that satisfying if Jerry's our main character with how he goes? You have, out of the two of us, a little bit more difficulties with those two things and when we've discussed films in the past. What was the first thing again? Accents. What specifically about accents? You have a hard time grasping them more so. Like, we've talked about Australian things on the show and Mm -hmm. off the pod and you go like... You know, the accent's a little bit hard to get through. Oh, I see what you mean, yes. You have difficulties understanding things and kind of getting enveloped in the world if the accents are a little bit too much for you. And this is a movie Mm -hmm. that has funny accents, and yet the movie's still trying to make you believe in the seriousness of the situations at points. Mm -hmm. How did you go with with that element, the accent stuff? Because in the past, you have had troubles, like even with True Stories, the... David Byrne movie, there was a few characters mm-hmm. that lost you there, who are very similar to characters in this. You could imagine True Stories is taking like place a state over from, from this movie. <laughs> it probably is. It's in Texas. <laughs> this is in Minnesota. <laughs> yep. I yeah, I didn't have any problem with the accents here. Like it, it was it was interesting to be thrown into a film where this accent is prevalent because the Minnesotan accent is one that I've always considered you know kind of token like there's gonna if there might be the one character that speaks like it and it's gonna be like a point of comedy like when we did jennifer's body and yes uh what's his name jay jonah jk simmons jk simmons he He he, played jay jonah jameson which doesn't help he yeah he um yeah he had a minnesota accent and yeah i found that a bit funny and in this, they have such a thick one that you could mistake them for Canadian at a certain point. Especially it's Jerry's true. wife, right? She's very... When she's, like, mm. chopping up the food and it's like, is your dad staying? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was just curious of that when I was watching it. Because in the past, you've you've had your kind of issues with that. And I was like, these accents are off the chain. <laughs> it's not so much you not understanding them, too. But mm. sometimes, tonally the accents can throw you off a little bit, like with True Stories, for instance. It's like, am I supposed to take this a bit seriously, but they're so goofy via their voice? Mm -hmm. These people are all very, very goofy from our standpoint with their voices. And people say we're goofy with our Australian accents. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the... But I would say it's deliberate, right? Like, obviously, the Coen brothers are, like, from Minnesota, I'm pretty sure, right? Or at least from this this, yeah. this part of the world. Mm-hmm. But is it weird? Like, did you find it weird that you're watching this gritty, serious crime movie, but it's taken place with these type of characters and this type of part of the world with these accents? Because you don't traditionally get that. I know that with the scene where Lou and Margie found the three bodies and they were speaking Mm. their accents and they were very, you know, whimsical. And like I said, Lou didn't seem like the brightest character. Oh, I don't agree with your police work there, Lou. (laughs) Yeah, I don't fully agree. Um, (laughs) With that scene in particular, I was focusing more on the fact that they're they're cops and they Mm. probably have to be a bit desensitized to things. Yes. And the fact that they seem to be from, you know, this kind of... Uh, again, I'll use the word whimsical little town kind mm. of adds to that. So I bought it there with the the police. 
because yeah. it, it mixes those two elements. Yeah, yeah. With yeah, and then even with our other main character Jerry, like he had the accent, but he had a lot more, you know, like neurotic stuff going on, mm. and it wasn't as prevalent, I guess. We talked about in True Stories how that film really did benefit from being a film that took place in Texas. We don't un- we don't know Texas. We're not from there, but we have an understanding of what. Texan culture kind of is from pop culture, like King of the Hill, for example. That's our main go-to, right? And the Contrarians was that, podcast. Was that one Texas? Wasn't it? I swear he's from Texas. Yeah, I think you're right. But and and of course the Contrarians podcast. Yeah, Alex. Them too. And, well, well, they both live there. They, yeah. they both say y'all. So. <laughs> Um, we have an understanding of it, and even from other Coen Brothers films that I've seen, you know, they have their Texas as well, and we talk about the, how that benefited True Stories, and we've talked about that a lot with movies before, like how Sydney really helped characterize um, new um, Two Hands, right? Two Hands, yeah. And so on and so forth. Again, how does... Th- this film get ben- what are the benefits of placing this this crime story in this area of the world in this area of America that again is not too familiar to people to general people like us to people who aren't from America this is not a a, a culture or a world or a location that we often see be the forefront mm. of a, a, of a story in a film especially one of this type how did this film benefit from that I guess because it did characterize a lot of the the natives to the cities that we see as being sort of you know like whimsical or matter of fact like the the guy that I can't remember who interviewed him but it's the second guy that called Steve Buscemi funny in general you know he's like yeah, sta- he's standing outside of his house like he was sweeping and then he Yeah the barman guy Yeah and he gives his uh his whole testimony just, like, kind of one breath, a lot of detail. Yeah. And his attitude just seems, you know, very blasé and kind of casual, <laughs> even though he's describing... How horrible how things. horrible things. And then the cop was like, eh, it probably doesn't matter. Yeah, so it, it gives us that impression of, like, the locals of the setting that we are seeing do have a bit more of a, you know, chilled attitude, and the big criminals in this film are sort of considered outsiders, and they bring very dark things into the setting. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, how the locals, mainly the police, are responding to that. Yeah, I I think, obviously, geographically it benefits because of the snow and everything being really far away from one another and just desolate. Yeah, there are times... Everything's desolate. There are times where what you're seeing in the middle of the snow feels very isolated, like when he's burying mm. the money and when Jerry is, like, re- trying to remove the ice from his windshield and he, like... Yeah, yeah. He's in his kind of lowest moment. Yeah, and, of course, the, yeah, all the blood in the snow. Blood in the snow. The, all that. Because I'm not saying that Fargo's the first. Obviously, there have been others, obviously, but it definitely is one that I think of of a brutal, brooding crime movie that takes place in the snow. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole thing now, right? Didn't Liam Neeson have a film last year in which he nearly destroyed his career that took place in the snow? The film that he was like, this is about revenge. I, I know about revenge. I tried to kill a black man once, and he almost ruined his reputation by saying that. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that interview thing, but I, I don't know the film. Cold Pursuit. There Cold you go. Pursuit. And there's lots of films like that. And uh, the Snowman. Uh, you can say the Snowman. Yes. yes, there's another one like this. This type of thing. And I think 
you know, Park is not the first one, definitely not, Cliffhanger exists, but it definitely is one of the most memorable, and I think it's just, film-wise, and real-world-wise, we can understand it, because in film-wise, we've seen this kind of representation of the desolate being the desert, right? Yeah. Where it's just barren wastelands and everything's white, you know, this one color and just hot and miserable and it's that idea of the extreme weather yeah civilization spread out civilization spread out nature taking over or not existing at all and you could do the exact same thing but with snow and it does it really well so it benefits in that regard but as someone out of the two of us who grew up in a rural area Mm -hmm. the film also benefits from having that very rural sensibility whether it be the Minnesotan one or the Australian one, which is there's this very overwhelming sense that this film provides that I can understand from growing up in rural Australia of there's that attitude, this weird attitude in which we're very deeply impassioned and caring about things, but also absolutely do not care, have no regard for anything. So that scene you mentioned where the guy's just like, testimonializing about the whole thing and he even ends with like and then i called you and uh that's the end of the story there yeah he did say that it's like he doesn't really care about the thing but he does care in a way because people told him like you should probably go tell and he's like oh you're right i don't want the community to get harmed it's like yeah he did feel like he was fulfilling an obligation yeah and that this film does a really great job of capturing that element of like jerry does not give a shit about his family at all. But he actually really does, mm. but also he does not. And it's... It's like, yeah, he doesn't know how much he does or doesn't give a shit almost. And that's a very rural sensibility to to me of it's like, oh, we really care about community pride and spirit and all of that. But, oh, did you hear about this person? got Their, their car got set on fire? Oh, yeah. Pretty bad, huh? It's like very... So there are obligatory things that you have to say that you care about. Yeah, and that and this film does that, right? Mm. I love there's this little detail. Just add to the corniness of the film, but the realism of the setting. I don't know why. It just adds to the character of the, of the movie. Is You have Jerry's son, who Jerry forgets exists. And since he forgot he existed, we almost forgot as an audience till, too until he comes back again. You're like, oh, that's right. Jerry has a kid. Mm. Right. Because he's off eating McDonald's instead of dinner. Well, hang out with friends. At there's this yeah. moment in which Jerry's talking to him in his bedroom. And you see he opens a door and there's a poster on the back of the door. And we don't see it fully until the end of the scene. We see at the very beginning, it's, it's very quick. You're like, what was that? Mm-hmm. And you see the kids on the bed. And on the bed, you, if you notice, he has a piano accordion in front of him. Yeah, he had a music. I remember he had an instrument. But it was placed in a way where if you're not really focusing on it, you're not really going to absorb that that's there. But you know it's there. But if you pay attention, you'll notice there. But mm. Then at the end of the scene, Jerry closes the door and it's like... Accordion King. The Accordion King is on his wall. And it just adds so much to the realism of the world that the kid, the bratty bad boy kid who's shirking his responsibilities and doesn't want to eat dinner. and And he gets C's. Yeah, and he gets C's. Passing grade. He plays the piano accordion and he loves it so much he has a poster of the accordion king on his wall. <laughs> well, in another film, he would be into punk, right? That would be like a Ramones yeah. poster or a Marilyn Manson poster. He'd want to get out of this town. Yeah, he'd want to go to the city. And he'd be smoking. 
and all of that, right? In this, he says like shit or whatever. And I think like, he says the F. He says the F. Yeah. But don't say what it means. But he, he says the F. loves the accordion king. And then you have later in the movie, Steve Buscemi takes his prostitute out to the celebrity room, and they see. I can't remember who that singer was, but Jose something being with an F. I think. And again, it adds to the realism. Like, yeah, that's the kind of music that these people think is great. And I enjoyed that guy as well. But it's like, you know what I'm saying is. It adds to the feel of the movie, and that feeling is so well realized that when you have the gritty violence that just completely sinks to the ground of how like futile it all is, it adds a further realism to it because you had this light, fluffy Fargo and brained area where the kid likes the piano accordion and Steve Buscemi, although he's fucking a prostitute, he likes this musician guy and Jerry Lungregard likes going to this football game here and trying to rip off these guys here. And, you know, Margie's uh, husband, Norm, wants to paint for a stamp. And it's like all these little yeah, details. It's, but it's, then... not, it's not like stereotypical things of the mid-90s, but these are things that are like specifically contained popular things. Yeah, and then all the extreme stuff, the crime elements of the movie come in and they it encroaches and it affects and infects and just contaminates and just ruins and touches all of those aspects of the mo- of those characters because at the end of the movie that kid doesn't have any parents anymore right yeah. he's just got his piano fucking accordion and Steve it's, it's something that you have to realize because you don't see him yeah yeah and Steve Buscemi's dead and he buried the money out and no one's ever gonna get you know the money's gone yeah that felt like a setup of like oh well he's set the marker so it's gonna be paid off somehow nope nope and Jerry he just gets arrested in a motel in his like underwear or whatever he's just so pathetic he wasn't fully dressed yeah. and he was like screaming and crying and like the the crime elements of the movie just uh, they do affect those positive elements as do the positive elements affect them as well because margie's just such a good person (laughs) that she just can't help but be good at her job (laughs) and figure it out and just look for the car and figure out that the car has dealer plates um we've got to talk about uh favorite characters did you have a favorite character or, or performance at least that really took you because she won an oscar for this she did yes and i think she deserved it yeah um yeah that's really hard i didn't pick a favorite but i know that every time he was on screen i was really interested in peter stormare yeah yeah i yeah. can't remember his character's name like gayer or something like he that. liked pancakes he liked pancakes um <laughs> yeah just because he is such a man of few words it's all in the physical performance and I guess I was kind of compelled to try and understand, like, okay, so what is this character thinking here? But I, I think now that I've seen the whole film... He's just a psychopath. The, the, po- the point kind of is is that you're not meant to understand. Like, he is completely stone-faced about a lot of things, but then he'll watch a, a soap opera yeah. with, a, with, like, a cliche twist of I'm pregnant and... He's intent on it. And he's going to drop his fork in shock. But, like, stoic shock. You would love No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Anton Chigurh is just is this type of character, but it's ex- like magnified more so and less goofy. But you would love 
Anton Chigurh. He mm-hmm. is he has a scene with Stephen Root, your favorite actor, who whose face you forget <laughs> and everything. I, I'm lo- I look forward to not recognizing him. Yeah, you look. He has a beard in it. I'm pretty sure, so you're definitely not recognizing. Oh, sh- him. Shit, he's going to be off the chain for you. Did he have a beard in Over a Dead Body? Um, he had unshaven, but he wasn't fully bearded. Right. I think he. Who cares? But this is Probably, us. Yeah. We're, we're Stephen Root fans. Um, you I liked, like him? Yeah. You liked uh, him. I'm a Jerry fan. I think this is William H. Macy's best performance he's ever given in his career, and it is the William H. Macy type performance. All the micro-expressions and the wrong times to smile and laugh and the nervousness and the absolute craziness that he ensues into this character, yeah. imbues he, into this character, he's is definitely my pinpointed. Run- he's definitely my runner-up, yeah. I love any scene he has with her when she's inter- in interviewing him and he's just trying to play along and he's trying to push her away and it's just so <laughs> pathetic. I know that for me, when I was watching the film, you know, we're introduced to him and he is our main character for a while. Yes. And to an extent, he does share the duty to an extent. Yeah. Um, And I kind of took that notion as a sort of obligation to... I guess try to take his side throughout the film, even though he is such a despicable person. Yes. So and he brought it all onto himself, and he brings it all onto himself. So when you look at him overall, once you're done with the film, it's like, oh yeah, this guy is, this guy is really, really pathetic. Like there, there are yeah. things that were against him, but in terms of the overall message of you know you can enjoy the simple things in life. This is a character where you're going to have to rewind pretty far back before the film to the point before he uh, crossed the point of no return, I guess. Uh, I, I want to give a shout out to Stan Grossman. I really like that character too, that performance. The guy on the, the phone? The accountant, uh, the bank, uh, the money guy for his father-in-law. I lo- oh, that, that guy. Yes, yep. I liked him a lot. He <laughs> had some great moments. Uh, I love those moments where he would just, you know, that just went, we're not a bank. <laughs> just constantly <laughs> coming back to reinforce liked, the. We're not going to support you on this. I like that he switched sides in a lot of perspe- in a lot of different situations between yeah. the father-in-law and Jerry. It's like, oh, this guy isn't just like one-dimensional. No, he he's does... not, he's not just a yes man, but also yeah. he is. <laughs> <laughs> he's a yes man, but not always to the same person. No, but just the demeanor that that character brings <laughs> is is absolutely wonderful. He he was a highlight for me on this watching of it. I really enjoyed what he was bringing. Uh Steve Buscemi, he's a, he's a legend. He is. This is one of his defining roles, if not one of his best roles. And is it because this is goatee Buscemi era, where Steve Buscemi had a goatee? Because he had it in Reservoir Dogs as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of moments where it's like, was Steve is Steve Buscemi at his strongest when he has a goatee? Because he just looks extra weaselly when he does. <laughs> is that just me? Because you've seen him in a lot of stuff too, man. Yeah, I can't say I've focused too much on it, but definitely when he has facial hair, there is a sort of, like, weasley sliminess. It makes his snaggle teeth look even more snaggly. Like, (laughs) what did you think of him in this movie? Because you could say this is a tried-and-true Steve Buscemi role we've seen before. Like, is he just Mr. Pink again? (laughs) I've only seen Reservoir Dogs once, and it was a few years ago, but he definitely felt like he had a lot going on here. Yeah, yeah. What did, Did you have a favorite moment with him? I liked his whole, fuck you, I got shot in the face. 
Oh, it's my car. What do you think? We're going to cut the car in half? Fuck you. <laughs> I loved that moment. It was wonderful. Oh, God, I don't even I don't even know what to pick for my favorite moment. He he just was very fun to watch just him slowly losing it and even becoming a bit of a darker character as the film goes on. Well, he like, murders at the end. By the end, at the beginning, when the cop gets murdered in front of him, he seems genuinely shocked because yeah. it seems like he's not a killer. But by the end, he's like, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> yeah, but even in his very first scene, like he's the guy that does all of the talking. He he interrupts a lot. Like, I'm not here to debate you. He like yeah. He kind of starts as like a all bark no bite kind of thing but then he becomes a biter who yeah. struggles to talk because he's been shot in the cheek which is funny because in reservoir dogs um mr blonde even even says like lines like that about mr white and mr pink about like your bark but no bite little doggy okay um mainly about mr white but pink gets it too because he's all he's all yap 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 i love steve buscemi he's one of my favorite actors for sure i have a canvas of him on my wall and he is marvelous in this film the coens know how to use him they know that he's a smart ass uh fast talking and of course they know he's funny looking which is one of it's the unavoidable yeah. it's one of the greatest steve buscemi moments in all of cinema history of just every time they find someone who's met his character all they can describe him as is just plain old funny looking just <laughs> generally funny looking well and one person like, said uncircumcised penis so well yes and which i wonder is that information about steve Samuel? is that just his character who knows who knows um but i love that because how would you describe steve Buscemi? funny looking <laughs> that's the greatest way to describe him it's 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 pure gold here I want to point out there's this moment in the film in which mm-hmm. they're, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stamore's character are driving. And um, I can't remember. I think it's maybe when uh, Steve Buscemi's trying to drag the policeman's body and then the other one has to get in the car and chase him. But there's this definite moment with, with one of their car sequences in which this music plays, this kind of pumpy up music. Because the rest of the music is very kind of serene and very gentle and very kind of lulling you in. And there's this music in this car sequence that's very kind of rhythmic and very dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And I was sitting there going, oh my god, this is the music from Intolerable Cruelty. Because they always have the same music guy Mm -hmm. in all of their movies, except for Inside Lewin Davis, in which they have no music. But this music is the theme music from Intolerable Cruelty, but Intolerable Cruelty is, like, far more Vegas jazzy over the top, if you remember. Like, it's far more, like, loud and... uh, Over the top feels right, yeah. But this is, like, that, but with a lot of the instrumentations removed, and it's just it to its basic core of the rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I noticed it, and then I started noticing, like, there are other little moments here and there of things that will feature in Coen Brothers things down the road or things that were there before and i kind of like that with our auteur directors right Mm. where you see their little things that they like and that they embellish them in others and you know play them down in previous films and all of that i like seeing that in a movie like this because it shows that the film uh makers like the coens who are pretty perfect straight out the gate with blood simple that they can still grow and change and develop and 
figure things out that work and things that they like from previous things. It just shows you that they don't just exist in this um, pristine, perfect vacuum because one of the things that the Coens get, just like with uh, Kubrick, we've talked about this before, is that they can be very cold to Mm. people, very pristine, very clinical in their approaches to things, even though they make movies like The Big Lebowski. Sometimes a movie, sometimes you get that feeling from them, but I don't get that personally. And it's like little moments like that where I notice that the car chase music will later be evolved into the jazzy theme music of Intolerable Cruelty, a movie about George Clooney who has perfect teeth. <laughs> and Jeffrey Rush singing I'm just a poor boy as he drives his Porsche you know like stuff like that I enjoy seeing that in in these filmmakers movies like with Stan, um, like with with uh, Tarantino right I like seeing him kind of evolve in that way and sometimes I don't like seeing him staying to the old things like Stan, uh, like uh, Tarantino stop with the feet now he's evolved into liking dirty feet, which I think is a de-evolution. I don't like that. Daddy don't like it. He's more comfortable with showing the dirtier sides. Uh, was there a moment that shocked you in this movie? Because there was, you know, some people, this is very shocking. Graphic violence, a lot of twists and turns in the narrative. Um, Unconventional storytelling in some parts. Like, again, main character, you could say, being Margie, doesn't get introduced until 33 minutes in. I don't think there was any huge shocks. I guess... And it wasn't really a gross-out thing, but when... um, When we see Steve Buscemi (laughs) Buscemi post getting shot in the cheek (laughs) and, like, him very poorly treating his wound. There was a slightly sort of like a icky moment with yeah, that. A visceral reaction. Like yeah. It, it wasn't too strong, but there was just a very thing of like, man, this makeup is very high quality. Did you get lost at any point in the movie? Because you've talked about that with previous Coen Brothers movies, um, that sometimes they can be a little bit too clever clogs for their own good, and you can kind of get lost in what they're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. You've talked about that with Miller's Crossing a lot. But yeah, yeah. What about this movie? There's lots of moments, like Steve Buscemi burying the money and sticking that in there, and all that. This, this, this. Jerry saying there's this much money, they want this much. A lot of, you know... We've got these characters over here who seem like they're not going to be important, but then they are, and all this everywhere. I think for this one, like I said at the beginning, I, I found it very easy to get engaged with and just let it ride out. I think maybe when I was watching it, I wasn't really taking in the fact that, like, uh, Steve Buscemi was noticing that there's way more than $80,000 here. Right, yeah. But even then, I just thought, like, oh, well, he can't be seen with whatever amount of money, so yeah. he has to hide it for later. Not that he wants to cheat out the other guy, because he gives the other guy just forty grand. because he says that they got eighty grand. Oh, yeah, 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 I noticed that, yeah. I just love that, again... They all, these characters bring these things onto themselves because Steve Buscemi most likely still would have got killed if he was honest. But again, it's that kind of, in movies, there's always, um, not always, but in a lot of movies, there's always a moralizing tale being told, right? There's 
the filmmakers, the storytellers have some kind of lesson or moral or theme they want to bestow, and this film punishes their characters very much yeah. so. This film very much has a lot of characters who, if they had to pick a Seven Deadly Sin, they picked Greed. They picked Greed, or Lust, if you're Steve Buscemi. He gets in a lot of troubles because he keeps fucking women, because who keeps finding him and being witnessed? People who have either been fucked by Steve Buscemi because they're prostitutes, or people who Steve Buscemi talked to to find out if they are prostitutes to fuck. Yes, but 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 then those witnesses are uh, helping give leads to the person who's motivated by greed. So the the crimes are all kind of greed. Focused. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I do like that Steve Buscemi's lust and his inability to not talk is what undoes them a lot. Yeah. Because she just she keeps finding people who Steve Buscemi has had sex with and or talked to about wanting to get sex. And that and just he does not shut the fuck up. Remind me, does um Because she talks to those two prostitutes. Yeah, does she does she ever talk to the one that the Native American guy kicked? The one, no. The one that, yeah, no. No, by that point in the movie, Steve Bruce she was already kind of on to on to Jerry. Yeah. Um but yeah, and we never see him again. Uh Chep. He, he yeah, Shep, of, yeah, we Shep, he, he just kind of goes away. Um no, I, I think the movie does a great job of kind of laying out all the cards on the table and letting you know this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, and this is the person who's just gonna keep getting in deeper and deeper mess. I guess if there was one thing that threw me off at first is whenever they talked about the dealer plates, since we yes. were dealing with a crime story, I kept thinking that they were talking about like uh, like a drug dealer or something like that. No, but he's a was, car oh, dealer. Oh, car dealership plates, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh is the film too bleak or mean-spirited to you? Because, you know, we say all this stuff, violence against violence, and all this, but there are those movies that still do that, but they can still be very bleak, very mean-spirited. Sometimes we say that these film, this film is moralizing and punishing the characters that don't meet up to the moral values or standards that the film is bestowing. Is it too much again the wife i assume she's she's dead right by the way the conversation goes she didn't do anything wrong and again this is one of those things in which in another screenplay she would have been a nagging wife a bitching wife all we get of her being negative is just jerry saying that she wouldn't help him out but we never witness her being a bad person Mm. ever she's the nicest person yet she gets killed for what reason? Like, that is a good point. Yeah. Is that is like again? It's like oh, we're the moralizing, or is like oh, is that because well, Jerry started a chain of events? Is it too much at any point for you, or overall? I guess I didn't consider the fact that the wife Jean Jeannie, I think her name was, uh, was kind of a good person. But I think overall, the the focus on these, you know very definitively good characters, uh, mm. lightens the load a lot, as well as a lot of the comedy and black comedy. I think what makes it all tie together is the fact that Margie doesn't understand it all, and mm. she can't process it. And that speech that she has in the car says it all to me. Like, 
you could say it's bleak and you could say that it's mean-spirited or you could say that it goes too far in places or that character didn't deserve that. Marge says the exact same thing and it's like, what was all this for? Money? And again, that's pointing to how weird it is in the real world that a lot of bad, horrible things that happen that we in other movies enjoy seeing happen, like Goodfellas, right? Mm -hmm. We enjoy Goodfellas. It's a fun time. And this movie, it was a fun time, but at the end, it's just like, all of these people died and were injured and, you know, now with no parents and all these terrible things. For what? Money? Which is just a concept that we've constructed for ourselves. Yeah. And it's like, what and does I, any also, of that matter? And it's and just like, the, the geez, wor- yeah, what does it matter? The, wor- the worse a person you are, the more infamous you are, the harder it is for you to kind of use the money too. Yeah, yeah. And it's <laughs> and the fact that our character there sits back and sees what the film has put out and says, you know what, I don't like that. That's, it's upsetting to me but still can go on to live and be happy and have a child in two months and her husband won the thing. And even though he's feeling a bit down about it being the three cents, she motivates him by like, hey, you know, they need... That's the one people are going to buy. That's the one when they change over the stamps. They're going to need little ones. It's like, oh, yeah. That's what puts it all together. If you didn't have that scene there, if you removed her talking to Peter Samir there, then I could see more clearly the point of this film being too much of a downer for people. But that scene there, it ca- it, 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 it's a cherry on top. It, it puts it all together for me. Mm-hmm. It is a linchpin, in a way. If you remove that, then I could see it being less of an impactful film. But that moment there, it always hits me right here in the heart. Because from her point of view, yeah, yeah, she's right. I mean... Why wouldn't she be? You could say, oh, well, she's a cop and she should understand that. Yes, this is the film. And the film has presented the cops in this like magical way where they're all <laughs> happy-go-lucky people who love... Oh, 60s Batman would love them, yeah. Oh, and Twin Peaks would love them too. That's true. <laughs> where's Gordon Cole? <laughs> where's, where's Chad? Yeah, where's Chad? Um... Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, where's Kiefer Sutherland? <laughs> oh, that's true. No, where is he actually, though? Yeah, where is he? <laughs> Kiefer wasn't the one that disappeared. It was the other one. Oh, shit, you're right. It yeah. was Chet Desmond. You're right. Um, Keith, well, we don't know what happened to Kiefer either. Um, <laughs> because oh. that part of the movie ended. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And it never got brought up in Twin Peaks of Return. But I think that's what puts it together. It's that, that moment there. Because it's kind of... The film's laid out its themes and its messages and its scenes and its characters, and you have a heroic character sit back, and it's like they're sitting back in their office, and they've read it all, and they've experienced it all, and said, oh man, that makes me sad. That Mm. makes, it's just, oh god. I could see in an alternative version of the film, if you didn't have that scene, but you still definitively had a scene or two of Margie showing that she hasn't changed as a result of all this, mm. it would still have the same effect. But it is nice that we had that scene. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a, a great film. Did you recognise who her husband was, Margie's husband? Yeah, I, he, I looked at him and he seemed incredibly familiar, but, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah. I think I looked up his filmography and there were a few things I recognised, but I can't John remember. John Carroll Lynch, who you may remember from our podcast episode. Uh, um, oh God, I'm forgetting the name of it now. The, I know that the we... one with um, Kristen Stewart when she's a 
child trying to steal from a bank. Oh, uh, catch that kid. Catch that kid. He was in that. He was their go-to guy. He they he was the actor man that they hired, and he wore like a toupee. They put a toupee on his bald head, and he was distracting okay. the mother with his goofy antics. And you loved him in that. He was your favorite character in that movie. Okay. If you yeah. go back, and I said to I him, and I said to you in that, oh man, he's so great in Fargo. He plays like this lovable, <laughs> like guy, and he's Clint Eastwood's brother in Gran Torino, and he's was just it, one of those character actors f- that's in everything, everything. I think I might re- no, but in Gran Torino, was he was he in the haircutting scene? Yeah, I'm. Um, yeah, I can't remember. If I don't he remember. Was... I don't remember the hairdresser in that being Clint Eastwood's brother though, because I think they were having like you know racist back and forth. But like, I can't remember if he's. It's been a while since I've seen Gran Torino. For some Same. reason, I can't remember if he was in the hairdressing scene or the car yard scene. Because there's, right. there's a movie where John Carroll Lynch plays a guy who owns, like, a car yard. I just feel and like... I think that must be Gran Torino because it's about a car called... Yeah. It's Gran Torino. I, I, just, I just feel like when I looked at his filmography, it, it said that he played, like, Mr. Barber or something like okay. that. So I'm, For some I'm reason, confused. There's a movie out there where he plays someone's brother that's, like, a weird casting show. I'm like, you're there, brother. Mm. But... He's a great actor, and I loved him in this, and he, him and her end the movie. What did you think about the ending? It's just one of those ones where it's like, all this crazy stuff happened, and now we're sitting down and going, whew. Pretty much what I was thinking was, as the film was wrapping up, because when, when, when she was driving Peter Stormare in the car, and it had like that wide or outer mm. shot... It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day, and the music was very loud. I'm like, oh, it's going to like cut to credits. And the one thing that I was worried about was, ooh... I would have liked to have seen just one more thing of Jerry, and then they did show, you know, him getting arrested. And yeah. That was kind of the only thing that was like, oh, thank God they did that at least. But then, Norm, he's painting it one. It won, yeah. <laughs> and I... then you find out it's a stamp. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked, because um, like I said before, simple characters but executed really well. You could really tell that that character was a very introverted guy. Um, he had a history. You could tell that there was something... The way that all the police treated him with this utmost respect, and then you learn... I don't know if you read the trivia for I did, this, but yeah. then you learn, like, the trivia that they... Like, you know, her and him, they came up with a backstory for their relationship, and then he was a cop too, and he gave it up for this, and it's like... Why didn't you, they give it up and he chose You can to, see yeah. that in the movie without it being told to you directly. Mm-hmm. That's what we call f- storytelling, people. It's what we call filmmaking. It's a visual yeah, medium. characterization, I go It's with, not yeah. Star Trek Discovery where it's like telling you but not showing you. This is showing you it. I mean, you'd you love ma- this one podcast called Yum Yum Cast. Yeah, yeah, the Yum Yum <laughs> Podcast, yeah. I, but, you know, it's not said verbatim, but you can, you can, you can pick up on it from just the way that they interact with one another and that it's not necessarily a bitter thing it's not like he's bitter about the fact it's just more no, kind of like all. he's just he that's just the feels, situation about it all he just feels you know introverted that's and all. insecure a little bit he's insecure yeah, about true. his yeah. painting and you know this is the thing that he's decided to go with now like he used to be a policeman in their constructed story but now mm. he's he's moved to this and this is what his passion is he's gonna and you know I would love to beat these guys who are really good at it because it would prove to my own insecurities that uh, what I'm doing is worth it all. And at the end, he wins, and it's like there's still hope. Yeah, and even there's still hope at the end of all of this. Yeah, and even though a lot of his traits kind of feel like a character that wants to be left alone, 
Like, you get introduced to him super tired and insisting, no, you have to eat some eggs. I'm going to make you some eggs. And just right there, what you're being shown is a character. And then when she comes back to the office and he's already there. When she comes back to the station and he's already there waiting for her. It's like, oh, this guy loves her. Isn't it nice to see that in a movie too? It is lovely, yeah. Especially in, like, a cop movie where one of them's a cop. Well, yeah, we get introduced to him pretty much at the same time that it gets revealed that this is a cop movie. How did you feel that um, she was heavily pregnant as well? Because that's an aspect that's thrown at your face. It is thrown... You're, you're heavily at, pregnant cop. It is thrown at your face, but I didn't feel like they focused on, on it all that much. Like She's constantly like, well, we don't mind if I'm sit down. I got a big... I got a load here. <laughs> yeah, it was mainly when she mentioned like that she has morning sickness that I was yeah. really like, oh, okay, she actually is kind of pregnant like it almost felt like oh that could just be a joke but yes yes but she's gonna bath but then when she's fine she's like okay i'm over it now it adds a certain je ne sais quoi to the film because there's that element of well uh, let's be real pregnancy conventions many conventions that our main character is in a lot of danger because one she's a woman Mm mm-hmm not to be sexist, but just this is a film language, right? Yep. This film has guns in it. It has, yeah, brutal violence, but like she's a woman. Not just she's a woman, she's a heavily pregnant woman. So, ooh, you should feel more. But like they don't play it like that. Mm. Again, they go against that. In another movie, that would be like the heavy thing. And he would be like, oh, honey, I don't want you going out there with a baby. All that. At the end, he's like, ah, two more months. Mm. Like, she went through all of this horrible thing. She single-handedly caught a criminal who was shredding someone in a wood chipper. And in another movie, he would be like, Ooh, you gotta stop, baby. You could have got killed in this. He's like, ah, I want my stamp thing and you're gonna have a baby in two months. So, like, again, it's the it's the way that they play it. Where they, Again, me saying that sounds like that doesn't make sense, but in this movie, it makes sense. Hmm. It all plays together nicely. Uh, I'm gonna wrap this up with talking about... Um, we talked about it briefly, but I just want to kind of circle back to it. One of my absolute favorite scenes, and I really want to get your thoughts on it some more, is the scene in which she has a little detour to go talk to her old high school friend. The... Yes, the Mikey Anagita, I think his name was. What did you think of, of that? And why is it in the movie? <laughs> like, I love it, but what did you think? This is your first time viewing. It's kind of like the side quest <laughs> In the movie? There was one very, very specific other movie scene that it made me think of. Yes. Go on. (laughs) Go on. Well, Ryan, what happens when you have a female lead that has a very emotional conversation with an Asian supporting character that is also in the film? Oh, I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Go on. Well, this one was different because he didn't reveal that he's gay. Right, you're talking about Love on a Leash. I It made me think of Love on a Leash a little bit. There's a film Love on a Leash in which there's the Asian side character who wants to date the main character because he's gay let, and he let, wants to get married so that way let, his family stops bugging him. And, and it's played very similarly energy-wise and, and, to yeah, this and, scene. And let's be, let's be clear, that film is a so bad it's good movie that is incredibly bad, making it incredibly good. Yes. And that's just like an emotional scene that comes out of nowhere. And, and is this just is like, the exact Whoa. same thing, where it's a really highly emotional <laughs> weird sexually charged awkward scene that comes out of yeah. nowhere and and it, and it follows up a very random conversation that happened a few scenes earlier where yeah where he phones her where he phones her in the middle of the night and just seems to be like oh i'm an old classmate i saw you and i thought i'd 
have a conversation with you and yeah then they meet up and and yeah you it goes through, it was a roller coaster of a scene that like goes <laughs> to a very sad turn um you you get to see that this guy's not just a pleasant chap that is here for a conversation he, and then he has he has a drive that's something else than what you think it's going to be yeah and and i guess if you're being optimistic about this character not being too bad of a person you could say that like oh he he was a very emotionally stunted person because of these events in his life like as soon as he mentions like no no no, she's not with me because of leukemia that's like oh okay this guy's you know got some tragedy to him but then later on but then you find out he's a liar and he's a stalker and he's a harasser who lives with his parents yeah (laughs) i loved his acting in that scene it's probably one of my favorite performances from just like a random one-off scene Mm -hmm. like because it's only that scene like you get him on the phone but like actually physically it's just that just that scene yeah it's one of my favorite performances of that type of variety because he plays the comedy moments really well like do you mind if i sit over here and she's like you know what i do my go back over there like that whole and then it becomes really awkward and then it becomes sad and then it becomes sinister like the sinister he plays that so well and his accent is is amazing too because he's obviously i've seen him in other things where he doesn't have that accent put on so it's like he's he, putting it on and he's, for this he's also one of the only non-white people in the film yeah. yes 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 and i just I loved their dynamic, just like, yeah. she's so uncomfortable, but she's trying to be polite, and then in this moment that I, I lost it, I nearly cried laughing, because it's not that it's funny, but I, it's more that I had such an appreciation for her acting, that that was just my response of like, this is so fucking brilliant. He's telling her, like, she died of leukemia, this this woman from there that he mar- apparently married and all that. And she's listening and she's doing the, again, that rural thing of, oh no, that's terrible. But then as soon as the waitress walks by to give them their things, she immediately cuts her attention to that. Showing you that she doesn't actually care that much about this guy's mm. dead wife. And it's just a brief moment. It's so brief you you probably don't notice it. But it just shows you in that scene that she still does not care about this guy in the way that he wants her to. Because... She's already been put off by him. And now he's laying on this whole, like, my wife died. And it's like, she's doing that platitude, like I said, of, oh, yeah. I like, it's not that she doesn't 100% care. But at the same time, what's her investment supposed to be in this guy who's just a random, st- practically a stranger to her at this point? Yeah, they were an acquaintance, it seemed like. And who's obviously tried to hit on her. And just that little moment, he's he's telling her this horrible piece of information about his life. And she has no reason not to believe it. But then the waitress comes over with this stuff or whatever. She, like, draws her attention to that. Because she just does not care about this fucking guy 100%. And it it ties into the whole kind of attitude of the movie. And I I love that Mm. scene. And I thought, you're watching it. This is your first time. And I'm like, this is a weird scene. And I thought you would get a kick out of it because you like weird scenes like this in movies a lot. And you brought up Love on a Leash. That's that our one, favorite scene in Love on a Leash. That both, one's an extreme example, yeah. <laughs> ironically and unironically in Love on a Leash, we both like that scene because it's really funny. But also, unironically, that guy's acting his heart out in that. But it's like, for what context, though? <laughs> Um, I want to watch that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I thought I just had to bring it up. And 
last question about the Fargo movie for recommendation. Mm-hmm. Who would you play in this? If you were given the chance to be a character in this, who would you be? Doesn't matter the age. Just who would you be? Because I would love to be Steve Buscemi. He, he was amazing. <laughs> he, he certainly has a lot to do, a lot to say. Because I, I have an idea of who you would play. Yeah? Yeah. Who would I play? Um, I'd want to be a more active character, so... Mm. Yeah, not not really Marge's husband. Someone a bit more active. Uh-huh. Um, okay. You think I'd be him? No. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> I know exactly who you play. Hmm. Yeah, I've stumped you. I yeah, lo- yeah. I love playing casting couch with you sometimes. Yeah, it's just like... Even though you ask me a lot of these same questions, like favorite character who, or something like that, like easy questions, I never consider it when I come in here and it always catches me off guard. Um, <laughs> fuck, who would I want to play? Um, it's a tough one. It is a tough one. You, 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 got, um, you got Lou. Yeah, Lou's a good one, but he's only in, yeah... He's the Andy of Twin Peaks. Yeah, he's definitely comparable to Andy. I was thinking that. Uh, I'll tell you who I think he would play. Yeah? You would play the father-in-law. I was almost going to say that as a joke, but you really think I would? You would... I've seen you act on stage, and you like that type of, like... His performance in this movie is amazing. Just, especially when he dies. Yeah. (laughs) When he gets shot, he's like... You would play that. If you were older and bald and had a mustache, you would be him. You would, like when he's squishing the ball at the beginning when we first meet him when he's watching the game. And he's like, "Oh, you would do that." He had That's... he gave a very strong first impression that like shot of him. Just and like there's that. that moment where he says like when when Jerry's like, "Oh, I'm worried about you know me and the kid," and he's like, "Oh, they'll Three be people. they'll be like he lists them too. He's like they'll be fine. My daughter and my grandson will be fine. You specifically not pointing out to him. You on the other hand, you would play him or uh, Stan." Grossman. Yeah. I was thinking that we haven't talked too much about the father-in-law. He was really good. I liked I liked how he died. <laughs> he deserved it. To, again, brought it on to himself. Again, again, greed. Like, he was talking throughout the whole thing of, like, oh, I want to protect my daughter, but I also don't want to give as much money as yeah. they're allegedly asking for. Yeah, it's no horse wrangling. Yeah. <laughs> well... He was on my mind, so I think, yeah, him, him's a good choice. Him, him's a good choice. Him, him. Him, him, hooray. Uh, and our friend Will would play the weird Asian guy who expresses <laughs> his love, but also doesn't in love and a Ali- love and a leash. But uh, speak, speaking of non-white cast in this film, yes, we do have three cast members allegedly. Yeah, we had him, we had the Native American, oh yes, and we had your mother's favorite musician. <laughs> yes, we had the guy who was shot in the field. Yes, who looks nothing like Prince. <laughs> Yeah, you know Prince, the the black musician. He looked a little bit like an like over, white overweight guy. white guy. That really <laughs> threw me off in the credits. Like, wait, what? What do you think? We haven't even talked about this. The film is based on a true story. My, this is a true story. My fucking ass. What do you think about that? Because that's not. It's not based on a. It's yeah, not I, true. I know. I know. But when, when you sat down to watch that, 
You didn't know that, right? I didn't know. When that thing came up and said this is based on a true story, I nodded and was like, oh, it, okay. It didn't even say that. It said, this is a true story, which even well, says true, further, yeah. no, 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 this is yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, it, it avoids the um, it avoids the whole thing that some people have. Where it's like when you say something's based on a true story, they're like, oh, fuck, it's not a true story. Inspired. Yeah, they're not looking at what the word based actually means. Yes. It's like the when you have a pizza, it's not a pizza base. Did it take away or enhance your... I, feelings on it when you found out that none of this is true or did you figure that th- that was bullshit at some point in the movie dude i completely forgot about it after a few minutes so it <laughs> when i read the trivia afterwards i'm like oh yeah that was the thing so it it means nothing to me <laughs> yeah uh that's it i recommend it you recommend fargo no okay fine enough uh the tv show exists it's fine um, I've only seen the first two seasons of it, so I can't speak to the, the rest of it. I it's, enjoyed it's a... it when it wasn't being the movie. There are just uh-huh. moments in which characters and things are like, you remember the movie? Like, Martin Freeman's character is just a discount version of the William H. Macy character in Fargo, mm-hmm. the show. In Fargo, the show, he's a travel insurance salesman, but instead of kidnapping his wife he accidentally murders his wife but in that you see his wife hates him and he didn't mean to kill her but she called him impotent so he just had to hit her and then later on one of the characters gets pregnant and then she's the pregnant cop and it's like no thanks the like the original stuff in that first season of fargo was the stuff that i liked more and that's my big thing about Fargo the show is anytime it was anytime it's trying to be referential or homaging or just mm. taking or trying to add to this film that's when it's the least interesting to me thematically it works that show being an extension of this movie thematically they do a great job but like when they are like this is the character who found Steve Buscemi's money and they built an empire and i'm like no the whole point money wasn't the point like at that in that regard of him burying the money and it being lost forever and again hammering in her point that this is all for nothing is what made more sense than oh but you see what you didn't know is after he buried that money this one guy came along and he found that money and it really helped his life out i was like so fargo is a show that exists i enjoyed it minorly bruce campbell played ronald reagan in an episode so that was wild okay billy bob thornton gives one of his best performances in in well over a decade as the lead antagonist in the first season he's great he comes along there's an episode where he's like threatening a guy he's like do you know how much a severed foot weighs because i can tell you He's like, please don't tell me, Billy Bob Thornton. Please don't. You're scary. <laughs> so is, is it a, is it definitively a follow-up to Fargo? I know it's, it's said, set in the world. Yeah. I know it's set in the same world, but is there anything that like you'd really say links it to the film other than that? Or the money. Just the money? The money and the setting and the fact that they reference the events of this film existing. But they don't, I, not that I was up to it. I don't so, think they it, ever actually had any characters from this movie be in right, the but, show. So it's not going to be one of those things where it's like, oh man, my friend told me Fargo is really good. I should watch it. No one's going to come up and say, no, you have to watch the movie first. No, you can watch the show on its own and it will work on its own. But if you've watched the movie, those moments to me in the show stick out like a sore thumb. Right. And some of them are structural to that first season and some of the second, but mainly the first. Um, where it's like Martin Freeman's whole character is just William H. Macy's character, but less refined, in my opinion. 
Okay. He's just Jerry again, but more of an outright douchebag. And again, that's what I kind of like about Jerry is he is a douchebag. He is an asshole, but he's also trying to... There's something good within there, but he keeps... He's a... You know, it is... He keeps fucking up, and also he's fundamentally in a situation where there's no way to well, win. Well, Mon Freeman is just an outright scumbag. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay... Yeah. All right, fair enough. But yeah, that's that's what I have to say. I just wanted to bring it up minorly because you, you haven't seen it. I've seen the first two seasons. I think it's an all right show. Weird casting choices. Ewan McGregor's in the third season as a lead character. Fucking Chris Rock's the main character. The fourth season is, is fucking Bruce Campbell as Ronald Reagan was wild. Okay. He turned up and he did a bunch of Reaganisms, but he's Bruce Campbell. So it's weird. Weird show, but... uh. The movie's definitely better. That, that's what I'll say. The movie's better. Fair um, enough. But I can see the this, this show has its own merits, but uh, it comes a point where it kind of feels like, well, the name only. <laughs> that's Fargo. what it's sounding like, because I read that it like was... Like, it didn't need to be called Fargo, yeah, really. I, yeah, I read that it was like a anthology series, and the yeah. only thing that I read that was a connection was this one guy found the money soon after, and he started like a grocery store chain or something. Yeah, there's multiple little connections that I watched. It, it, basically, I like Fargo, but it's trying to do the Breaking Bad thing of having this really detailed criminal underworld and in a setting that you wouldn't expect it, but in a TV show format, and Breaking Bad kind of already set the stone set the uh, that in place not saying breaking bad is it codified the concept yeah fargo to me i like it as a show but it's kind of true detective meets breaking bad okay and that sounds awesome but you know like and it is i i again i enjoyed it i want to watch the rest of the show but it, you know it's one of those things you know how it is mm-hmm. it's just so much to watch that you just can't keep track of it all and you just have to hack out the weeds and since it's an anthology show it's all right for me not to immediately start and be like, oh, I've stopped it for a couple of years. I'm going to be so lost when I come back. Is it like nah. every season's like a different story altogether, pretty much? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Uh, the second season was like a prequel to the first season, like one of the characters' dad's story. But it's right. a thing. Well, that's it, listening people. We're back. 2021. We are going to tell you what we're going to be talking about next episode. It is a listening people's recommendation. Yeah. My wife has recommended a movie. I know her. My wife, Rachel. I can open the door and say hi. She may even join us for the episode, hopefully. I if hope she things does. don't go wrong in our world in the interim. Yeah. It would be nice if Rachel joins us. Yeah. Uh, she recommended the 2007 oh. film Juno. Okay, yes. I can't remember if it was 2007. It feels like it's I 2007. I think it's 2007, yeah. If there's ever a film that screamed, I'm from 2007 or 8, mm-hmm. it's Juno. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Juno next episode, a film with an I have an interesting history with. I don't know if you have any history with it. But, I've seen uh, it once, but that's it. Uh, it's definitely a film that will bring up some discussion because it's one of those yeah. films that in itself is a weird one where a really beloved film for a period of time, a really despised film for another period of time, mm. and I don't know what it's like now. People loved it for its quirky dialogue at one moment in time, then people said... Fuck that quirky dialogue. <laughs> I don't know where people Every, are with it now. Everyone place your bets. Are we going to accidentally dead name? Yeah, I hope not. I hope not either. Um, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to say, you know, the wrong things, but we will persevere and uh did you know Rain Wilson's in that movie? Just fun fact, Rain Wilson. I know that name. Who's no Dwight Rain? from the office. 
I know. I think I know what he looks like. Glasses. Yeah, nerdy, weirdy. I've guy. seen him in some movie. What movie? Yeah, was Yeah, he was in um my super ex girlfriend. He yeah. was the best friend. Yes, that's and we were right. like, he's weirdly cast in this movie because you would not think of Rain Wilson as like the Quagmire best friend. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. You would think of him as the guy from Super. As, as in, that's exactly the movie I'm thinking of, not the. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's it. Uh, hit us up on those social medias, Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polished Presents. And we have an email, spitandpolished at gmail.com, in which we would love to hear uh, your thoughts, questions, queries and concerns and recommendations for future movies because this is a listening people's recommendation for the next one. My wife recommended it. We have a list of other people's recommendations. And if you want to add to that, we got to hear from you because we don't know what Every... movies you want us to talk about. Everything goes on the list so everything everything even fictitious movies that are only existing in an actual movie yeah like that shitty prison film yeah Shawshank Redemption Shawshank Redemption no one's recommended Shawshank ever exactly no I was referencing your stepbrother recommended <laughs> the gangster movie that exists in Home Alone 2 Home Lost Alone in New one. York wasn't it Home Alone 1 nope Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, because it's that sequence in which Tim Curry is trying to knock on the door and they're afraid because they think a gangster's in there wanting to shoot them. I know it's in the second one. Wasn't it in his house, though, not in New York? There's, they, You know what? I'm going to make a bold statement. Second one, it's just the same movie again. Okay. I'm telling you, that scene happens in the second one also, if it did not happen the first one. I've watched them both the same amount of times, so excuse me if I've forgotten the intricacies of details between the two movies. Maybe we should do those next Christmas. We uh, can. We can, maybe. Maybe we'll do Home Alone 4. <laughs> hey, there are four, aren't there? Yeah, there's five, I think. I don't know. There's oh, lots. Well, why not six? But that's it. Uh, until next time, listening people, remember uh, to be kind to, to each other, yeah? Oh, yeah. Be kind. Uh...